Hello, welcome to the Cellar Door Society. This is our official first episode, and we are really excited for it. Um, a little bit about us. We talk about all things strange, creepy, and unusual. That can be true crime. That could be the occult. Um, really anything that piques our individual interests that we get real passionate and excited to share with you guys. Uh, we do have a website out there, thecellardoorsociety.com, and we'll, we will be more present in different social media channels and avenues, so keep an eye out for us. Um, a little bit about me. My name is Jake or Jacob. I'm originally from the Midwest, and my own personal passions tend to revolve around things that are metaphysical or occult in nature. The paranormal is really interesting to me, um, but I tend to be on that side of things. Uh, much like my co-hosts, our interests are varied, and so you'll get a little bit of everything in each episode. I'm really excited about it. Um, Ash? Hi, I'm Ash. Um, I'm also from the Midwest. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm also interested in the occult. I want to maybe talk about some astrology. Um, just, I don't know, more about like what that is. Divination. Um, true crime's always great creepy paranormal yeah um like jake was saying some some fun stuff in there really excited for it what about you james hi i'm james um i'm on a completely opposite side i'm not from the midwest i'm from the east coast uh and i am definitely more into your dark aspects of like true crime reality things that can happen in real life um not to say magic and stuff can't but things we can see and touch, I guess, uh, dark things such as that. History, buildings, and I really love the uh, phenom phenomena of physics and the paranormal world, how stone theory, all those type of things where you can go to a place and you don't have to be around people, but you can still experience stuff. Um, and I'm really excited for everyone that's listening from this episode and on to grow with us to watch how things change, to watch how uh, the program changes and where we film from uh, whenever we start doing that and whatever. Absolutely. I think every new adventure is always exciting, and today's episode is varied. Um, I'm going to kick it off, and today we're going to be talking about a cryptid, uh, specifically the Van Meter Visitor. Um, I know I've talked to uh, James and Ash outside of this a little bit, but I've left a lot of meat on the bone still for everyone to enjoy. So let's jump into it. <clears throat> Uh, we're going to start with where this takes place, and that's going to be Van Meter, Iowa. So this is, if you're familiar with Iowa at all, our capital is Des Moines. So this is in the Des Moines area, specifically Dallas County, Iowa. It's situated, <laughs> yeah, it's situated the along the Raccoon River, and in the last 2020 census, the population was just shy of 1,500 people. You know, leave it to the Midwest to have the most American names for things dallas county raccoon river yeah it's well if it ain't Love broke it. don't fix it <laughs> uh, the town's motto is tradition with a vision there it is so yeah cute little uh, quiet town yeah. van meter was initially laid out as a town in 1869 the city was named for Jacob Rhodes Van Meter and his family they were dutch settlers from and i'll probably butcher this Materin in the Netherlands. Hmm. Van Meter was incorporated on December 29th, 1877. Um, I tried looking into some history in Van Meter before the event, um, and there is some stuff in there, but nothing that uh, 
nothing that piqued the interest too much as far as uh, cryptid related or creepy. Um, but in 1903, things change. So, 1903, we have the Van Meter Visitor event. The Van Meter Visitor is a winged monster that was reported to have been sighted by multiple people in and around Van Meter, Iowa, during the fall of 1903. The fall? The fall. Oh, like the falls in the season. Sorry, I went straight to the fall, like the conquering. I was like, excuse me? In 1903, (laughs) when we conquered everything. (laughs) Press reports at the time described the entity as having great bat-like wings and a blunt horn-like protuberance that radiated a dazzling light. In addition, right, a unicorn maybe, (laughs) right? With bat wings, though, that would be a little horrifying. Yeah, I'm not saying it wouldn't, but uh, how could you not call it a unicorn? It has a protuberance coming out of its head and it's glittery. I mean, it's like two of the biggest signs of the unicorn. Yeah, fair enough. Um, in addition, it possessed a stupefying odor, so maybe not so much unicorn, or just one stinky, stinky unicorn. Eat some cheese. The company was a the entity rather was accompanied by a smaller mate or offspring, and was claimed to have been witnessed exiting and entering an abandoned coal mine by a number of the town's residents. Um, so, kind of interesting, um, kind of weird. So I did some some further digging and i managed to find some actual newspaper clippings from the time here oh no that's really cool i dig that a lot some of these newspaper articles kind of surprised me because they were they were from places i guess i didn't really expect to report on um iowa news let alone like super small town iowa news so the first one is coming out from the saint paul globe in Hmm. saint paul minnesota um, obviously Midwest based, but again, kind of weird. 1903, we're talking about Iowa. The title of the article, A Winged Monster, Creature Emitting a Light and Dazzling and Terrifying the Hawkeyes. Des Moines, Iowa, October 10. The van, the town of Van Meter, containing a thousand people, is terribly wrought up by what is described as a horrible monster. Every man, woman, and child in the town is in a state of terror, and fully half of them fail to close their eyes in slumber except in broad daylight. (laughs) Pretty wild. That's really dramatic. Yeah, I feel for these people not getting any sleep. The monster put in its appearance Monday night. U.G. Griffith, an implement dealer, drove into town at 1 a.m. and saw what seemed to be an electric searchlight on the Ma the mayor and Griggs store. While he gazed, it sailed across to another building and then disappeared. His story was not believed the next day. But the following night, Dr. A.C. Alcott, who sleeps in his office on Principal Street, was awakened by a bright light shining in his face. He grabbed a shotgun and ran outside the building where he saw a monster, seemingly half-human and half-beast with great bat-like wings. A dazzling light that fairly blinded him came from a blunt, horn-like protuberance in the middle of the animal's forehead, and it gave off a stupefying odor that almost overcame him. The doctor discharged his weapon and then fled into his office, barring his doors and windows, remaining there in abject terror until morning. So these people are losing it. Right, right. But we got more. Peter Dunn, cashier of the only bank in town, fearing bank robbers, loaded a repeating shotgun with shells filled with buckshot and prepared to guard his funds the next night. 
At two o'clock, he was blinded by the presence of a light of great intensity. Eventually, he recovered his senses sufficiently to dis distinguish the monster and fired through the window. The plate glass and sash were torn out and the monster disappeared. Next morning, imprints of a great three-toed of great three-toed feet were discernible in the soft earth. Plaster casts of them were taken. I did find photos of the plaster oh, casts, sick. so we will look at those after this. That night, Dr. O.W. White saw the monster climbing down a telephone pole using a beak much in the manner of a parrot. As it struck the ground, it seemed to travel in leaps like a kangaroo using its huge featherless wings to assist. It gave off no light. He fired at it and he believes he wounded it. The shot was followed by an overpowering odor. Sidney Gregg, attracted by the shot, saw the monster flying away. But the climax came last night. The whole town was aroused by this time. Professor Martin, principal of the schools, decided that upon the description, it was an antediluvian animal. Um, so that would be like a biblical creature, oh, basically. Okay. Thank you for defining that. Shortly after, oh, my newspaper article. Shortly after midnight, J.L. Pratt, foreman of the brick plant, heard a peculiar sound in an abandoned coal mine. And, as the men had reported a similar sound before, a body of volunteers started an investigation. Presently, the monster emerged from the shaft, accompanied by a smaller one. A score of shots were fired without effect. The whole town was aroused and vigil was maintained the rest of the night, but without result, until just at dawn, when the two monsters returned and finally disappeared down the shaft. So that was the first article. Um, I was most, I guess, taken by the number of specific people they referenced. Um, instead of just saying, like, oh, you know, Tony in town uh, reported a monster, and that's what we're reporting on. They've, they've named five specific people and their professions. So I found that to be a little interesting that there were enough, like, legitimate townspeople that they could do a whole article on it. And then the Tacoma Daily Ledger in Tacoma, Washington, ran a story as well. They called it Another Yellow Monster. Uh, this one's a little bit shorter. There must be no assumption that the caption has reference to a new Hearst paper. It refers to a story published not far away in the guise of a special telegram. Sometimes there is a fool at each end of a wire, but probably there exists none who would telegraph such stuff or who would receive and pay tolls upon it. Suspicion will be aroused that the tale was received in some other way. Perhaps it was dreamed. Dreams are cheap, and if they occur after a hearty meal or something indigestible as waterlogged securities might easily take form of the narrative in question. The strange condition portrayed itself, portrayed is said to prevail in an Iowa town. There, a fearsome monster of the air hovers in the sky. It seems to have the manners of a bat, but more magnitude. The exact dimensions are not given, but from the terror inspired, one might reasonably suppose that the thing is about the size of a whale. The I wait, a whale? That's they're they're basically. It kind of comes off that they're dragging the fact that this Iowa town is freaking out about like oh, some okay. like imaginary. Okay. So they're saying these people are so afraid of this, it has to be as big as a whale, basically, to Got be it. terrorizing What's or the, causing so much terror. They're being satirical about it. it that's how it comes yeah, across. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, maybe they're taking digs at the uh, what was it, the St. Paul Times, yeah. uh, St. Paul Globe. So. 
Kind of hard to tell. Uh, almost done here. The idea is dissipated by the statement that the visitor was once detected in the act of climbing a telephone pole, probably with the purpose of tapping the current and finding what people are saying about it. <laughs> One peculi peculiarity is that at the, the night, the, end, the head of the monstrosity throws out a blinding light, like that of a locomotive, and in daytime, the body emits an odor by the side of which the smell of a specimen of the genus Mephitis becomes as the odors of Arbe. So I think they're saying it has like a demonic odor. Right, right. People have shot at the thing and never got a feather, hair, nor drop of gore. They have reached such a stage of fright that they stay indoors and, dis and tremble. There is no statement as to what they think the thing intends to do with them. The last scene of it was as it disappeared into an abandoned coal mine. Science of the local brand explains that the antediluvian animal must have come out of a trance. An easier and far better explanation is that the little town of Van Meter, Iowa... There's a wooden-headed, copper-bottomed, double-riveted liar. That's a, that's a one way to describe somebody who's not telling the truth, I'll tell you that. Yeah, so they, they really went for the jugular on that one. Um, Surprised they picked copper and not, like, yellow-bellied or something like that, you know? It's a, I want to know, sorry to bring it off topic, but, like, I'm really curious, what, what does double-riveted copper have to do with anything? You know, what is... Copper-bottomed, double-riveted liar. I feel like double riveted implies strength, but copper is a soft metal. Maybe they're know. saying they're just one hell of a liar. Yeah, hmm. yeah, like real built up, real confident in it. So we have two different sides. We've got one newspaper um, basically giving credit to the town of Iowa and recognizing that there's something creepy going on, and then another one basically saying these people are just out of their minds. Um, so I found that to be a little bit interesting. I'll show you now. The there was an artist depiction of what the townspeople were describing was attacking them. I feel like there's a 90s cartoon with that exact character. They're very I, well maybe. That sounds really nostalgic. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, for our listeners, it's essentially a pterodactyl uh, with a laser coming out of his head. Yeah. Um, so, a more scrawny pterodactyl. Yeah, he looks He looks like he's not eating. Yeah, needs, needs yeah. some sustenance. Um, Mom didn't make him sandwich on the weekends. Right, and maybe that's why he's in town. Right, it's Just right. to get a bite. Um, here's the plaster of the the three toes. It's supposed to be like in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of right. hard to see three toes, but I I can mm -hmm. I can understand what they're going for. And there's another image of that pterodactyl with a laser beam at the bottom. If I may, you may scroll up here. And... Oh yeah. Uh... It's not selling you, James. No, it's not. You know, unfortunately, it looks like... Uh, okay, just judging off the story. I know I'm always going to be the... the, the what's a, the negative Nancy, I guess you could say. No, I wouldn't say negative. But... I think you come at it from a practical or maybe a okay, more... Okay, yeah, um... that's, a, that's a nice way of saying it. Um, to me, it kind of looks like just hoof marks. Like, if this was out front of someone's store in a muddy street, it was obviously during times, like where not many people had tires or cars, right? So who's to say that wasn't just two people's horses sitting there and they were like, ah, rah, 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 doing horse things, you know? I'd be interested to know if the people who saw it, like, had any relation to each other because it's... Oh. I find it interesting that, like, a few people saw it. Like, it wasn't just, like, one person. Right. Like, oh, you're crazy. <clears throat> 
But if they were all friends, what if they were just bored and like trying to cause a little trying to get in the papers and the mm-hmm. yeah, hey, let's get Van Meter on the map. Yeah. Let's come up with uh, the first person was a doctor, right? There was a doctor in there. There was a banker in there. Yeah, think about it. Who salesmen? Those are two of the most rich people, or the most owning probably of people in the in the city. Mm-hmm. This 1903. This wasn't a massive town by any means. Right. That, you know, I'd expect. So low, low educated farmers, you only have a few educated people, such as the banker, the doctor. If they say it, I mean, shh, boy, howdy. Dr. Bill Brinson told me that, you know, I'd believe it if I was in 1903 and didn't know any better. Like, I know I would. Um, to all my fellow Iowans, uh, we, 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 we don't all sound like that. We know that. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, but I, I, I understand where you're coming from 100%. Um, I found it to be interesting that the first guy to report on it was basically a traveling salesman rolling into town Ooh. late at night, right? And he says, hey, I see this. I see a light that appears to be moving, and it smells bad. Then he tells people in town the next morning, and they're like, you are off your rocker, right? And then all of a sudden, everyone starts seeing it. So, like... Are we maybe dealing with a case of like hysteria taking over the town? Who knows? Um, so I looked for more info online. Okay. Right? Can I can I find anything else? And I found an interesting theory. Um, there's a redditor out there, user Unicrat. So uh, make sure he where he's getting the credit that's deserved. Nice. Um, so he's got a theory that kind of piqued my interest a little bit, okay. and. Um, I wanted to pitch it to you guys and get your guys's your guys's input on this as well. Um, so I'm just going to read it verbatim. Um, so here's how we jump into this. It struck me that there is a potential solution to the mystery of the Van Meter visitor that seems to fit many of the facts that we have received. Is there anywhere on Earth an eight-foot-tall creature with a beak and wings that presents a vaguely humanoid silhouette? Yes. Hmm. That accurately describes an ostrich. Looking at some of the other reported properties exhibited by the Van Meter visitor, could they fit an ostrich? There were two sounds reporting, a rasping, strangling sound like a man's last breath. That's an ostrich. And a noise that sounds like scraping two metal files. He then clips a YouTube clip that includes um, like an ostrich hissing sound. I won't play that here because I don't think the microphone will pick it up very well. Um, The hissing noises exhibited at 30 seconds and following them are aggressive behavior and seem to fit the witness's description. And what's more, such behavior would be expected response if an ostrich was feeling threatened. Although ostriches are very inquisitive and not particularly scared of humans, in most cases, a threatened ostrich will simply run away rather than attack, and that seems to fit the behavior of our visitor as well. Bat-like wings wings might be a valid description of the leathery skin found under the wings of an ostrich. I didn't know there weren't feathers under there. I didn't either. I'm not real up and up on my ostrich uh, you know, information. I, like, I love the zoo, but I, I have to say those are the ones I pass over usually are the ostriches. Now, I like birds. I'm a, I'm a fan of birds, but the ostrich just hasn't been one that I've, uh, you know, really felt kindred with, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, he talks about the plaster, the footprint I showed you guys. So he says, physical evidence was left in the form of a three-toed footprint, although the cast taken was... You know, changed over time. Ostriches happen to have only two toes, but interestingly, interestingly, in sand or wet mud, the t- footprints do in fact look three-toed. And he oh, provides a photo as well. 
Ostriches, oh my goodness. Ostriches <laughs> are crepuscular and are active and are most active at dawn and twilight. Okay. However, they are most active under moonlit nights. The period of the sightings on September 29th to, the Oct- to October 3rd corresponds to a waxing gibbous moon, so there would have been plenty of moonlight if the weather was clear. Now, taking as the witnesses were probably not familiar with ostriches, or at the very least not expecting to come across one, can we account for any more peculiar features? The first obvious issue is that the ostriches do not have horns with lights on the end. (laughs) However, they do have the largest eyes of any land vertebrae, and the eyes are located atop of their horny beaks. Witnesses describing the horn in the forehead of a humanoid does not mention a beak. Uh, This was Alcott. If he assumed a human-sized creature with a horn on top of his head, that might make sense. Now, the witness, Greg, who mentions a beak, does not report a horn. Now, most birds do not exhibit eye shine, but as it turns out, the ostrich does. I have a photo of this. Oh, I I know what eye shine is, yeah. Specifically in an ostrich. Oh, that's super bright. Yeah. Huh. Perhaps it is possible that the light observed was either reflected moonlight or building light from buildings of the town itself. It is surprisingly hard to find a photo, but here's the one, and that's the one I showed you. Um, Accounting for why the shots missed uh, by their own accounts... Oh, Ashley's showing us a photo right now of an ostrich, and it. It's oh yeah. The wings from behind. I would. It looks. Pretty, I'd be concerned. It looks I'd pretty, be concerned uh, with my life. It does look monstrous. It, it does, does look, look monstrous. Like a, it doesn't no, look it does like not look like a bird. All, no. And if you're in Iowa, right? Right. You know, chickens, sure. Some cardinals, right? A you know, hawk. A like, hawk. A crow or a raven's the biggest bird you'll That's see. That's a big-ass chicken, right? And if, yeah. it's, if it's running around town, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I would be a little freaked out about that as well. Um, other One of the other witnesses described the creature traveling in leaps like a kangaroo, kangaroo using its large featherless wings to assist. Uh, sounds a lot like an ostrich. Yeah. They use their wings a bit like air brakes to help them maneuver, and their stride length is really immense as they pick up speed. Um, so basically, he just goes on to kind of provide arguments against his theory, citing the fact the ostrich is not a climber, so he can't imagine a ostrich climbing up and down a telephone pole like was reported. Um, however, he is pitching that um, telephone poles may have been shorter at that time. Um, yep, so if sense. there was an ostrich, you know, running its beak up it or something, it could look like it was climbing down. Um, the ostrich also does not fly, but townspeople did report that it was flying. However, could it just be maybe the kangaroo bouncing on the ground with his, or the, well, the I mean, ostrich bouncing on the ground? Even chickens can get some air. Yeah, like they're not flying for long, but like, what do you call flying? Two seconds of the air or 10 seconds of the air? You know, like I could see how uh, somebody would see it as flying for sure. sure. Yeah, especially if it's not something you're expecting. Mm-hmm. And it's at night, so it's even harder to see. You can't perceive how high or how low it is off the ground. Yep. Uh, this is the last paragraph. Um, <clears throat> the last thing I have not addressed is that the ostrich is clearly not native to North America. However, by 1900, there were numerous ostrich farms in the U.S. which were farming ostriches for both meat and their feathers, which I hate. I hate that. That does not sound like a good time. Uh, The feathers were popular adornments for dresses, hats, and other fashion items. Um, He cites that there were large ostrich farms at this time in California by the late 1890s. 
Arkansas by 1900, and by 1905, ostrich racing was becoming a prominent attraction as a tourist attraction at the farms. Um, In other words, 1903 is both late enough that ostrich farming was becoming common in the West and the Midwest, but still early enough that most people most likely have never come across an ostrich in the flesh. Brilliant. So, mystery solved? Who knows? Um, I thought it was an interesting one to report on because, um, being from Iowa, I always get jazzed up about things, you know, in my mm-hmm. own state. Um, especially something as strange as, you know, a cryptid. It's not really something often talked about. You know, the paranormal and things like that, I think by and large, maybe Ashley can speak to it as well. Um, I have found in the Midwest, it's just kind of not talked about, you know, there's some people who might believe in it, but oftentimes they're kind of like, did you hear what Betty was going on about Mm -hmm, with the ghost? mm -hmm, mm Um, so I thought it was interesting. I really got jazzed up about, uh, finding the old newspaper articles. I love reading that stuff. Um, I spent more time than I'd care to admit looking at other pages just like reading the advertisements and stuff. Um, that was that was really fun. But that is the Van Meter Visitor. I, um, have, a, I have a question Please, for yeah, let's hear since it. Since this is our first episode and we're just getting into things, can you define what a cryptid is? Can you give us like a little description of what that word uh, references or means? Is every monster a cryptid? Or? <clears throat> now, this is my own personal definition, right? I think there's, there's definitely a, a more official one. I take the cryptid to be any sort of a creature that is quote-unquote impossible to exist or, you know, it's a myth. You know, mm-hmm. things like Sasquatch, mm-hmm. Yeti, those sort of creatures fall under the cryptid. Um, you know, it's it's like your monsters. It's um, maybe you could claim a unicorn would be under cryptid and they probably would say right. something okay. like that. Great, great definition. Um, yeah, so that's just my own personal take on it. What's your take? About the same, actually? I don't have a good definition, but yeah, I, I just always see them as something mythical, kind of like a some sort of like a fantastic that, beast. Yeah, yeah, some kind of like magical about them. But that was uh, what I had. Cool. For my episode one, um, Van Meter Visitor. I think it would be fun to at some point go down there ourselves and maybe take some photos around the town and. Um, yeah, I think it'd be cool. We could pop over, go check out the Black Angel. I, th- I think we're going to say that about, know, I dare say, 95% of I the topics so. we yeah. hear. You know, it's, I like traveling. Yeah, traveling, <laughs> traveling and seeing new things is the best way to experience life, in my opinion. So, 100% agree. That was really cool. I like the Van Meter Visitor story. That's well, a, thanks. That's a sick I was really happy story. to share it with you guys. And um, if you are from the area or if you're from Iowa and maybe you have a correction or you have a story or something to add to it uh, please get in touch with us let us know we would be more than happy to uh, read that on a future episode and uh, make sure you guys feel like you're involved as well really excited to hear about uh, what ashley has if uh, you want to kick that off all right so um in 2005 warren jeffs built uh, a 140 acre compound near pringle south dakota pringles Pringles is a really small town. It has oh. like a population of 107 people. Literally hoping for that's where the Pringles headquarters was. No, it's it, it's just really small. It's in the Black Hills area. And um, then can you remind me what the overall subject is? Just this polygamous compound he built there, essentially. Sick. So, Warren Jeffs was part of the FLDS sect of Mormonism. Basically, he had like... 87 wives at some point Jeez. and so he needed a lot of property for for these wives to live on 
on this property there was 10 acres for like an orchard they had tanks Tank? Um, tanks like boom boom like military tanks or like tanks of water i think stuff? like water tanks. oh okay basically <laughs> he built like just his own infrastructure oh, it had like sick. everything okay. that they needed to live there they had a ton of buildings some with 26 bedrooms and 26 bathrooms oh my gosh there was a problem with like recording birth records and stuff because unfortunately he was marrying children um <sighs> and so you know, on a birth certificate, you have to put the mother's age, and when right. they're underage, that's a problem. That's yeah, you can't do that. Right. Yeah, um, but he was basically considered like that's a crime, like a prophet. Yes. He was considered like a god almost, like in the likeness of that. Okay. But anyway, so in 2017, it was estimated that around 300 people lived on this compound. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, yeah. In 2006, Jeffs was placed on the FBI's most wanted list from running from charges related to the illegal marriages. Arizona charged him with eight more counts, including incest and sexual conduct with minors in 2007. He was extradited to Texas and found guilty of raping a 12 and 15 year old that he had married, um, sexual assault of a minor, aggravated assault against a child. He was sentenced to life plus 20 years and fined $10,000. But yeah, just like a lot of sketchy i mean he's just obviously a horrible person yeah for, right, right. for um, sure but Not it was just yeah <laughs> it's just really odd like growing no one talked about that this compound was there no one really did anything about it and this is a, it, around an area you had grown up in yeah wow. um and i didn't hear about it until i was like late in high school they had guard towers it was all fenced off from the outside world Everyone that lived there was super sheltered. You know, they didn't have access to TV. There was a lot of strict rules, like, including, like, you had to put a certain arm into your sleeve first. What? Like, you're right before your left. I don't know if that's the way it was. But just, like, a bunch of, you know, he was an abuser and had to have these, like, little aspects of control over people. I always get riled up when they put, like, a dollar amount, because they said they fined him $10,000. That, like, never feels enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's... What's even the point of that? Right, like, and then I just feel like it's... You're saying... Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so just... I don't know. It was weird that no one ever did anything about it. It was a public road, but you couldn't drive on it because they had the watchtowers. If you drove your car there in the middle of the night, they'd shine their lights down on you. So there was these three guys, um, Patrick Pipkin, Seth Cook, and Andrew Chatwin. They were former members of the church, um, and I guess the sect owed them about 1.7. Million? Yeah. Oh, um, Some part of like a legal set- settlement... They were accused of trespassing on land that the sect had leased them. And then, so yeah, they got like arrested and then they sued because it was land that had been leased to them. So in 2021, um, the courts ordered that compound to be sold. And those three guys bought it at the auction and then sold it again. So when they bought it, it was under Blue Mountain Ranch LLC. Okay. I'm really confused about all of this. Um, so they bought it at the auction under, like, kind of with that church, and then they sold it to SDR Training Center, which is a nonprofit church that was registered in South Dakota in May of 2023. The <laughs> mortgage lender is still Blue Mountain Ranch LLC, and the interest rate is 0%, which usually yeah, means that non-profit. they have something. Yeah. But that church isn't listed as any, like, tax exemption things either, and I can find no information about it. I wonder if the first church 
bought it under their mm-hmm. housing and then like gifted it or something yeah. to the next church because it sounds like ultimately they're all the same thing right that's kind of what i'm suspecting but yeah. the three men that bought it said that they were like separate you know, from it yeah and <clears throat> like that there wasn't going to be anything bad occurring there anymore they were acting like it's a good thing but it kind of seems like it's just stayed in there and even when they were doing tours to sell it like they weren't letting anyone in a lot of people kind of fled from the compound so they i mean there's a ton of dresses and stuff there and like papers and weird letters that he wrote to his wives and um i feel so bad for these wives you know but they were like a lot of them felt like they were doing something so holy by being married to him god was smiling down on them because if he's a prophet like god and they get to be married to this man like how then they get to be close to the source but um south dakota legislator timothy goodwin is quoted saying he um and he being warren jeff's son roy jeff's had no reason to lie to me i'd say what happened i'd say what happened if there was a baby with down syndrome or whatever he said he just killed them at birth what, excuse oh me? my god mm-hmm. um but no remains have ever been found goodwin says that the bodies were burned there have been allegations of child sex trafficking that occurred at the compound. So it was just like a really odd, like, why didn't anything get done about it? Why was that allowed to operate in South Dakota? Which is a pretty conservative Christian state that doesn't really mess around with, like, that type of Mormonism and having wives and child brides. Like, mm-hmm. it just seems really interesting. I kind of wonder if... Somebody was in on it. Yeah, or maybe some type of money thing. Money they obviously had a lot of money that mm-hmm. it was just allowed to operate there. And it really was just ultimately, like, because the well, FLDS church owed these men so much money that they ordered it to be sold off at auction. But now it's kind of still being kept in there. Like, I wonder if there's was some more sinister stuff that was happening. Oh, that's sure. like They don't sure want the was. land to be turned back over to the public. As, you know, I'll tell you this. When it comes into property law and what you can do on fully owned property and not mortgage property um, which could explain the zero percent because if it's owned and paid off there'd be no interest to be charged towards it you would just be playing paying property taxes on that well there's some sort of like payment plan i guess that the oh, okay. sdr training center they like, like listed agreed it. To. i wonder if i can like... uh, but what i was going to get at is that like when you have private land and then especially if it's listed under a company like an llc without an actual warrant from some federal legislation or local you're not you're not going to get anything and like it's it's well i think to ashley's point i think the the bigger issue is why wasn't there more done like if we know if we know this stuff is going on it's on public roads right and how Mm -hmm. come somebody isn't stepping in to say you know well, you know, why are we allowing this to, to happen? Well, I think that's where both of you, I agree 100%. I think that's where the money comes into it, right? There's definitely some type of payment going somewhere into politicians' hands, mm-hmm. local law enforcement's hands, something like that. Uh, I mean, I, I would dare say the hope. Well, I guess this is the first episode, so yeah, we do need to. You never know. This is an opinion based. Uh, podcast you know we uh we report on fact we use facts to report but then we do summarize and like speculate speculate that's the form opinions yeah um yeah that's it's really interesting because that was not on my radar at all and then remind me ash did did you say the 
the main guy is in jail now? Yep. Okay, very good. Yeah, he... So, he had the compound built in 2005, and then I think by, um, like, 2007 is when he really started facing a lot of legal trouble and was extradited to Texas. So, I don't think he spent a whole lot of time at the... Two years, huh? In the one in South Dakota. It's kind of hard to get a lot of information on. He had some other compounds in, I believe, Arizona and Utah. And do we know if his 87 wives followed him to Texas or if they just stayed at the compound? Because you said they I know were some kind of them of like ran. spread out. I think they kind of went wherever he wanted them to be. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, his his son that was speaking to the South Dakota legislator has passed. He, Is it a funky death? He killed himself. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what the most appropriate way to sure yeah say that is. Um, I don't think but he committing suicide life. is right yeah. to say, but like, yeah, he took, took his, his own, own life. life. Yeah. Just a lot of trauma. He, Warren Jeffs was just a really horrible person, and I feel like he abused a lot of his kids. Yeah, I, um, I mean, it sounds like it, um, especially I mean, it when you're like... using religion as the, I think when it comes to religion, people are willing to sacrifice a lot because, to Ashley's point, it is, uh, you know, the, the opinion is you're being smiled upon by your mm-hmm. creator right so you want to be around that and it's uh just really foul when people use that as a weapon to um control and especially to other people's detriment right i mean that's just yeah a lot of people got hurt on our uh our sympathy to all the victims included because that's mm-hmm. uh, such a hopefully they're they're all in a place where they can get the support they need or have a support system now that will allow them to help work through some of that just serious trauma i honestly couldn't find a lot of what happened to them like where did they go did they go to a different compound i think some other compounds have been sold so like i mean when you're that cut off from the world and not getting like a proper education and what yeah what well, do where do you turn where do you even start and if the government was so uninvolved like it's not like they probably stepped into mm-hmm. you know help there's probably it's a lot not of, like they went into the federal witness protection program mm-hmm. or anything like that right. was they were that wasn't even involved in this. Here's um a little map of the property. Oh wow. But yeah, it's that was like compound. basically that and was the like an orchard over there, and that was the road that went in. That's where they had the guard towers and stuff. But you can see just kind of how it's secluded. super secluded, isolated it is, and in a, and in a. A, like a almost a mountain locked area there's mountains on three sides of it yeah. or at least high ground you know yeah it's it's pretty hilly not super crazy um and then the listing it was said to have 77 beds and 74 baths wow there's a, we're looking at an article listing for the property for our listeners cement hang on cement plant quarry yeah they have their own quarry there wow Meeting house, lodge. I'll say this. Anybody who has money to build this and, like, actually put Ugh. into this, it would be, they would have a legal team to the stars, the, you know? So it doesn't surprise me that there's not a lot of information out about it, especially if the if law enforcement or federal agents were involved in it. Uh, to paint a picture, and uh, for the listeners, we will get some of these photos up on our various social media channels. Um to paint a picture for you, if you've if you've ever gone to like a summer Bible camp, it is that feel. It's very much like a cabin-like structure, like a stereotypical camp 
camp structure, but on the inside, it's got that like that dorm room or a college hallway. Yeah, feel. yeah. For um, yeah, not a place I would want to spend a terrible. It just has like, a lot really of time sterile at sterile vibe. Very yeah, sterile. Yeah. Does it feel homey? Like if, ugh, like a hospital, like a like a nursing home. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> like a nursing home, you would not want to. The only the out. only things that are there are things you have to have for mm-hmm. life, and nothing more. There's no art. There's no, no art. Yeah. There's no theme decor. There's no nothing to it. It's literally just. It walls feels very for... sad just looking at the yeah. photos. It feels sad. Honestly, um, without trying to put uh thinking about it with, before knowing all this about this place just looking at it like that still would have been sad without yeah. knowing the history of it, you're like oh my gosh what, what was this yeah That's well wild. thanks for sharing that ashley especially yeah. having uh like a personal connection to it having grown up around the area i think that's uh very interesting but because like i said it wasn't on my radar at all yeah, no, um, so nice to put a spotlight on something like that and then james i think you were gonna be starting the next thing right yeah all right, so my topic is, uh, it's hard to give a title to it, honestly, because it kind of covers three different things within one thing. So I decided to call it uh, the topic, the Ursuline Convent, and I'm probably mispronouncing that because it is French. Um, but, so way back when, in 1720s, 30s, right, there was this whole uh, thing going on of Filets de, oh, Fils et la Cassette, right? Uh, or translated roughly to women with suitcases. And this was a program that was started uh, in the, I actually think it started in the 1600s. Um, sorry if I got that wrong to whoever's listening. But basically what it meant is Quebec was a new territory and they needed women, reputable women, to come over and provide wives and families and like kind of like whip the men into shape, if you will, right? So uh, the person at Quebec who was in charge wrote the king the king was like, all right, we'll get all these people together. And they got, I want to say it was 350 women together and sent over to Quebec. Right, and so this went on for a few years. And then uh, they were called the king's daughters. That's right, I remember that. Were these weddings arranged? Or no. it was just like, hey, we're looking for women who are yep. interested in being married. And yeah. Yeah. Can- so okay. I'm going to talk about them first. This is where this is the basis for what is to come later on the paranormal aspect of it. So the king's daughters, or the fils du roi, uh, is a term used to refer to the approximately excuse me I got it wrong 800 young French women who immigrated to New France between 1663 and 1673 as part of a program sponsored by King Louis uh, the 16th, 15th, 15th. Um, anyway, so basically it was designed to like boost the population provide families, so on and so forth, right? So we're going to fast forward into the 1720s. And the 1720s is when New Orleans was still a French territory, but it was newly founded, newly grounded. Like, there had been nothing set up there yet. Um, and Jeanet, where's his name? Uh, Jean-Baptiste Le Moyne de Bienville, sorry to all the French speakers <laughs> out there, that was murder, um, wrote the king, well, this is what history tells us, wrote the king, but from what I found in actual records, seems that he more wrote the head provincial of Quebec. Okay. And so what happened is, he was like, hey, look, we have the same thing, same problem, we need some king's daughters sent down there, and they're like, yeah, 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 okay, that was like a hundred years ago, bro. We're gonna send you some new people, some different types. And so this is where that name of the Fils de la Cassette came from, or Casket Girls. And this is where the myth starts, right? So young women, 
who some sources say were of ill repute and some say were of good standard. Um, ill repute meaning prostitutes, people who had been in poor houses, addictions, that type of thing. And good repute meaning uh, teachers, people who ran orphanages, young women who had gone through schooling but didn't have parents because of war and so on and so forth. Right? They were shipped over to New Orleans. And there's about 250, that's where I got that number from, I believe, 250 women came over and when they landed, I mean, it's a journey, right? We're going from Quebec, top of the nation, all the way down and around the Atlantic and into the port of New Orleans. That's months and months of being on a, on a ship. They were kept in the bottom of the ship. Uh, some sources say chained. Jeez. Uh, because So like the history side that says they were of ill repute says they were kept chained up and weren't allowed to move around and all this stuff and so on and so forth. And as you can imagine, the other side of history is like, oh no, they were just kept in the bottom of the ship for safety <laughs> because, of, because of hurricanes, wind, and then also the sailors. They wanted to keep God the sailors away. God forbid this little fragile woman go up yeah. on deck, the wind might blow her yeah, over. She might get salt I mean, water on her. That, yes, I find is a little bit ridiculous. I do find a lot more merit in keeping them away from the sailors. These, these are men who are not of good repute. These are people who've dedicated their lives to sailing ships. They will do whatever they want to whomever they want in some cases. So we're talking about pirates? No, we're talking about <laughs> sailors. <laughs> um, just in the 1700s. <coughs> sure. uh, so still operated similar to pirates, just more code and hierarchy. But anywho, so they were sent down and they landed in New Orleans, but they were sent to Mobile and Biloxi. And Jean-Baptiste, he actually is also the founder of Mobile, which used to be a French territory as well okay. in Alabama. So he got Mobile going. He was like, okay, sick. I'm riding my horse over here. And he was like, this place is terrible. I'm trying to get it going. We're right here at that point. So these girls get off the ship, and they're all carrying little boxes, little wooden boxes that are only, I want to say I read the dimensions of like 19 and a half wide by like 20 inches long and just real shallow and this is what they were supposed to keep all of their belongings in that they wanted to take to this new world no clothes couldn't fit clothes couldn't fit dresses nothing it was like your jewelry and some cash maybe so, i don't know what they carry around. so they sent these women and either chained them up or they kept them under the boat mm -hmm. they have no change of clothes for months at a time and then now they're expected to go find husbands well wait 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 okay in a way yes but so when they arrive in New Orleans, they're sent to the Ursuline Convent with the Ursuline nuns who had arrived mm -hmm. earlier in 1732, okay? The building that they were staying in, the Ursuline Convent, was finished in 1734 and then rebuilt in, or excuse me, 1728, then rebuilt in 1734, okay? And they were, all these women were sent to these nuns to be taken care of, stay there until they found a suitor and were married off and went to start a family. Okay. Okay. As these women were getting off the ship, they were... Obviously, rumors started chattering about their appearance. They're very pale. Some say their skin almost blistered immediately from the subtropical sun. You also have to think they're coming from a... Yeah, super an, dark, you know. Right, like a colder environment. And so they get off the ship, hasn't seen theoretically sunlight in months. They get off their pale white. They have this casket-shaped box. Mm. That's where the whole idea of the casket comes from because, like, obviously French doesn't translate into... 1700s English, right? So they kind of just make this up and then the newspapers get a hold of it, so on and so forth. These girls go on, move up, blah, 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 blah. Time goes on. Well, eventually, the Ursuline nuns, like all these women were like, okay, yeah, screw this. We're done. We're leaving. So all of the ones that were left, 
hopped on a ship and went back to Quebec or France, and the nuns went up to collect their things. They put all these boxes and such in their trunks and whatever in the third floor of the um, convent. Nuns go up there to get their things to give them to the ship or dispose of them. Not a single item is found in any of the boxes. There's they, nothing. They got robbed. No. The nuns are there 24-7. They never leave their convent. Mm. In their words, it is as if the stuff had disappeared and we didn't know how it happened because it was kept under lock and key the entire time as well. So this is kind of where the myth starts. This is where the rumors start fluttering around that these women are vampires. Oh, okay. The skin so pale. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. see the immediate blistering of the sun. They uh, carry around little coffins. Exactly. Yeah. Coffin casket. That was the rough translation. Exactly. And so, and then the, these nuns don't find anything in these boxes. So the nuns seal it up. They even close the door put shutters on the windows, lock it up. And this is where history, I can't really find a real answer, but... Is where they shut up the room where the, the caskets were? Correct. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Where these boxes were. And supposedly, they used nails to put the shutters shut that were blessed by the Pope himself. Wow. <laughs> they went all out. Literally. They believed this was powers. such a belief that these women were of demonic standard, of vampire standard, that it needed to be sealed and protected. Because what doesn't a vampire go anywhere without? It's sleeping space. It's living space. Mm -hmm. It's casket. It's coffin. Right? And vampires are also known to be uh, shape shifters, morphs. So who's to say they couldn't squeeze down into a smaller stature and fit into these? Sure. Yeah, I, I guess I can understand the reasoning. My, my brain immediately goes to either... I'm sorry. Well, do the women say anything about this? So this is where it's very hard to find any information on it. I have combed through French records. I have combed through uh, Louisiana articles. Fun uh, side note to what you talked about is, yeah, oftentimes where you find information is in cities like 200 miles away on mm -hmm. their newspapers. I don't know if they, they were just like hunting for weird stuff to talk about or if journalism was a different game, but I found more information about these casket girls in um, Alabama's newspapers than I did in New Orleans. Interesting. Anyway, so there's no really record or statement from them you know it's almost like once they got married off they were married off and say la vie ha! Mm -hmm. no pun intended for the french um but the interesting thing is i did find marriage records okay from 1728 and i can find in june july now uh, i can find the ship name and all that fun stuff so i have a the people on the internet have a rough estimate of when they arrived and i was looking at that and it does seem to go from moderately French naming, some with Americanized versions, to heavily French wife, wife names, um, which is really interesting now. Uh, granted, trying to find those specific names, impossible. I haven't been able to any luck on finding them, but there are records out there that if you wanted to chase that dragon, you could. Um, so to continue the myth, we're going to fast forward into the 1960s, okay? Talk, talk, talk. Everybody's talked about this forever and ever and ever. Uh, there are museums in New Orleans that you can go and actually see the original caskets that these uh, women would carry off the ships and such. But these two reporters, or some sources say reporters, some sources say paranormal investigators, because 60s, 50s, the height of the paranormal era, right? They were like, okay, okay, we're going to prove this once and for all that there's vampires in this location. They go and they camp out on the sidewalk outside of the convent. Only one source says they were on the grounds of the convent within the walls. 
most sources say on the outside sidewalk. And they had a camera placed up watching these shuttered windows because the rumor was that these windows would open at night and things would emerge or they would just open. So they had their camera pointed. Next morning, all right, well, it's said that they broke... I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so next morning, their bodies are found dead and drained of all fluid. The reporters. The reporters. These paranormal investigators, whatever you want to call it. Camera wasn't to be found or it was smashed. I can't remember, like, what it was, but, like, there was no proof to find out, like, who did this, how this happened, or whatever. Couldn't find a death record or a newspaper article on it. Granted, I don't have all the money to do all the subscriptions to find the information, sure. so maybe one day. But, um... There's that. The other side of the story is that these similar situation camping, they broke into the convent. When they broke into the convent, they went upstairs, they broke into the third floor, and they found coffins, uh, like actual coffins, coffins, locked and sealed as if a body had been put in them and ready for burial. Supposedly, same thing, they were found dead, bodies drained, but inside of the convent. I only found that on two articles. Um, so it was kind of like a little side note, but it's very intriguing because I can see how people in 1700s would deduce that these people are vampires, right? From just so pale, probably more attractive than what they were used to, I guess, or just different. So like there would be that shock factor and vampires are known to be uh, very sensual and very attractive and like all that charming, if you will. And so it's it it, it kind of plays i can see it i can see it now the history side of me did find that like this is real events this actually did happen these are real women that were shipped from either france or quebec over to be married onto these mud living hillbillies essentially uh in the 1700s i mean it's a territory that's just built they don't even have you know, like infrastructure mm-hmm. yeah you know the convent's pretty much the only real building that they have besides their wooden structures so um I guess if I was if I was going to go down the vampire route and I was a vampire, I might also get in on the start of something, you know. It does seem like a pretty big um, escalation to have, like, you get all these women coming from another country with all of their belongings in one small box. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they have people that they might not trust saying, like, yeah, you can keep them in this room. And then when the nuns then check that there's stuff in the box, the boxes are empty and they're like vampires. I guess I, if I was in the, the women's shoes, I would probably just take all my possessions on my person and not leave them with the nuns. But that's interesting. I've never heard of that either. But it's cool to think because I know there's kind of like a culture down there around uh, vampires. Isn't like True Blood taken in the South, mm-hmm. right? I actually thought about that. I was like, I wonder if True Blood it has some inspiration in or something. Of that. Yeah. So, fun little uh, spits about, I don't know too much about vampires, but fun little spits I do know is the most common places are mentioned in history is the Old South. And that's because that's where some of the largest ports with the least educated people. Sure. And when you think of a vampire or someone who can run the town, you know, who's been around for hundreds of years, you understand how people work. You don't want somebody who can read. You don't want somebody who can speak Latin. You want somebody who knows how to cut down hay and make a nice bale and go drink a beer later. Uh, that's about it. And so it would make perfect sense to me that they would aim for places like Mississippi, Mobile, Biloxi, these heavily agricultural communities. Um where they can make a name for themselves and then also hide out where there's a lot of old money. What's better to blend in than 
things that are already old. Jacob, I see you looking up some stuff. What you, what's gurgling in your mind? I, uh, what's gurgling in your mind? There was, I can't even remember on what, it might have even been the Discovery Channel, but um, you know how there's like the uh, ghost hunting videos? Oh, you of know, course, yeah, yeah. There was one, and the two dudes were vampire hunters, right? They only made one episode. It was, I'm sorry, this is my opinion, it was not a very good show. <laughs> Um, they were really stretching on a lot of stuff, but it made me, obviously we're talking about vampires, so I thought about it, but one of the guys was like, he basically says like, I'm actually not worried about being attacked by a vampire because I wear, and he like pulls his, the neck of his shirt down a little and it's a, it's like a little scarf Oh. and apparently it was made of Kevlar. Oh. So he's like, vampire fangs can't even get in through the Kevlar. Like, that was his, that was his thing. He had, like, a Kevlar. That's, uh, it's pretty right, intense. Yeah, like, check out the Kevlar undercollar. It's like, like a chain, but right, in a yeah. different way. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I didn't know anything about, you know, obviously I've heard of the FLDS, but not, you know, not this specific situation. Um, and that was wild to listen to. And the vampire portion was really interesting. Oh, you brought up James. We got kind of got a little bit of everything. We got some paranormal. Yeah. We got some some real life facts. Um, one, we got some cryptid stuff. If you don't mind, one thing I want to add is uh, I liked how both of uh, Ashley and I's topics hit on personal things, but really just like that these were real people. You yeah, know, it's yeah. easy to hear rumors. It's easy to hear myths and all these things. Not saying that what Ashley talked about was a rumor, but. It's easy to hear this uh, word of mouth and like forget that this is probably based in fact in some way or another yeah. and so you know never forget the, that there's real people involved in this yeah stuff. and i know yeah. we said it before but we uh feel for all the victims involved with this and mm-hmm. in both situations you know? right depending on who knows what happened mm-hmm. to those women hopefully good things but you never know yeah i can only hope i do think it's really interesting that i think almost all cultures and you know groups of people have recordings of vampires like right. way back when like it's not just like one group of people that were like oh i think vampires exist it's it seems to be like a recurring the theme yeah and werewolves and stuff like that it just kind of makes me wonder where people got all these similar ideas from and like how most religions have a really similar creation story it's just odd right. like how how much everything is mm-hmm. based on a similar, small amount yeah. of stories i you know that's one thing that i really love about the uh I, well, okay, love, but also I have a theory about the paranormal world and the kind of the world of the mystic, right? When you look at history as a whole, we've only become more intelligent and found more ways to detect more things. If you are a, a universe that wants to protect its sanctity, you wouldn't continue to go to a place that can find you, right? So, like, as as we've gone on, we've seen a huge decrease in, like, paranormal events and that type of thing. An increase in UFO, but decrease in paranormal and such, uh from like the 1980s and on, right? I mean, how often do you hear about a, we're hunting for a ghost that died in 2002. Like you, you just don't hear that, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so I think over time, the lack of curiosity and the progress has tempered our minds to not be able to see these things that were once so real to somebody, right? There's still that psychological aspect that if you believe in something more, you probably will see it. Whereas if you don't, it's easy to miss. Yeah, I think there's a a big, and rightly so, um, I think there's a big reliance on science to explain away a lot of things. And I think that could contribute to why claims of the paranormal have gone down. You know, uh, somebody seeing electricity for their first times, you know, they might think, whoa, what's going on here? And as it becomes more widespread and and commonplace, then it's, it's easily to explain away. I do think that since the mind is so 
you know, we're still finding things out all the time about the power of our own minds. And I think it tends to be kind of a catch-all for like, it could be imagination or, you know, you imagine that, or since I didn't experience it, I can't claim it to be true. Um, so it must just be, you know, something you're dealing with on your own. Yeah, I, I think there's kind of a, a push to explain things away. And uh, I think part of the the core one of our core goals here in the show is just to be a safe place where we can kind of explore some of these more maybe uh, outside of the norm ways of thinking or subjects and uh, share those with you, our society members. And um, hopefully over time, you guys will all feel comfortable enough to share some of your own experiences with us and we can continue to uh, to grow this. Um, that'll be the end of our first episode of the Cellar Door Society. We're super excited to bring you even more content and more episodes. Um, again, we've got a website up, thecellardoorsociety.com, with some contact information and keep your eyes peeled for a future social media presence as well. Uh, this is Jacob. I'm James. Ash. And we are signing out.